Diocese of Churches for the Sake of Others is pleased to present the C4SO podcast, a place to celebrate the voices and values of C4SO. C4SO is a national diocese of the Anglican Church in North America, led by Bishop Todd Hunter. You can learn more about us at c4so.org. Welcome, everyone, to the inaugural episode of the C4SO podcast. I'm your host, the Reverend Ben Sternke, and I'm here today with my friend and our bishop, Todd Hunter. Hey, Ben. Great to be with you. It's so great that this day has finally arrived. I think you and I talked about this months ago and then had to put it on hold because of COVID, and and I've been thinking about this for a while, so I'm glad the day's here. Yeah, me too. I'm uh, really glad that we can get this project uh, kicked off the ground. Uh, We're starting this podcast to as the tagline says, celebrate and um, celebrate the voices and values of C4SO. Um, and I'm hopeful that this can provide a greater sense of connection, uh, maybe with people in our diocese. Um, I think it's valuable to hear um, the voice of our bishop um, uh, more often, and um, we'll just kind of see where it goes. We're, we're trying to make this uh, a fun conversational time, uh, but that also uh, provides some insight, some window into uh, the life of our diocese uh, as we go from there. So that's what we're looking forward to. Um, just a couple uh, things to mention before we get started with today, uh, the content for today. Uh, we'd love to hear from you if you have questions or comments. Um, maybe we'll do some Q&A episodes in the future um, to cultivate some dialogue. Um, and we want to make this podcast a kind of a helpful point of connection for you, our listeners, people who are part of C4SO or interested in C4SO for any reason. Uh, you can email us at connect at c4so.org if you're interested in interacting in any way, ask a question, etc. Um, and also, before we get to our conversation, if you are a member of C4SO Clergy and you're listening to this, make sure to register for C4SO Together, our online clergy gathering that's coming up on Wednesday, September 30th from 11 to 1230 Central Time. Uh, Bishop Todd's going to be speaking with us about cultivating the values that connect us uh, and answering questions uh, afterward. So you can register for that at c4so.org slash events. Um, And also for clergy and anyone interested in the life of our diocese, uh, you can save the date for our virtual diocesan convention that's happening on November 14th, and we'll get more information to you soon about that. Um, all right, so today we're starting this, uh, this, this whole podcast is starting with um, a bit of background as to kind of C4SO and where it came from. And uh, today we're going to primarily hear from you, Bishop Todd. Uh, hear some of your story and hear, um, hear you share some of the vision and values of C4SO over the next few episodes. Um, but today it'd be great to just focus on your story um, to a lot of the DNA um, of C4SO is obviously rooted in you and your story and what God has done in your life. And so um, I wondered if we could start there. You did not grow up as an Anglican or in the Episcopal Church or, you know, anything like that. Um, Maybe just sketch for us, for people who are not familiar, uh, a little bit of uh, your spiritual background. Uh, Give us a feel for the faith tradition you came out of. Yeah, there's an interesting little side story that my wife, Debbie, um, actually did when she was really young 
grow up in the Episcopal Church. Her dad oh, yeah. was in the Marines, and so she has a typical, you know, military kid story of moving around the country. And her mm-hmm. her parents would take her to the chapel on the bases, which I guess mm-hmm. normally were Episcopal. So she yeah. actually has like those little pins you used to get from Sunday school, you know, where okay. you know yeah. you uh, you know went to all the yeah, classes yeah. or whatever. So it's just That's kind great. of a, a funny story because. She basically grew up unchurched, but when she was mm-hmm. little, she was actually baptized in an Episcopal church. So she was sort of prophetic way ahead of me. Yeah, yeah, the full circle here. So, so I, you know, I, obviously I talk about some of this in uh, my book, The Accidental Anglican, but I think the things that someone would want to know to understand me and um, the vision and values and worldview and kind of style of leadership or whatever that I've come to at, you know, my now advanced age of 64. <laughs> Is I would say I grew up in a culturally Christian home. Okay. We were United Methodist, but I don't remember ever hearing like gospel terms or whatever, you know mm-hmm. what I mean, or biblical terms. Mm-hmm. I do believe my mom, who's now deceased, had a genuine, real faith in God. She was the head of the Sunday school program at one point. I remember when I was a little kid, like when I was like maybe, I don't know, second, third, fourth grade, she was head of the Sunday school department. Um, my dad, unfortunately, was a, um, a, a sometime alcoholic and, um, and a compulsive gambler. And I remember these old ladies, you know, again, I'm really young. I'm eight, mm-hmm. nine, ten years old. I remember these old ladies used to drop off groceries on our uh, front porch. And I would just wonder, what the heck? Why are these people, mm-hmm. like, we're normal people. Like, why are people <laughs> giving us groceries? Yeah. But I didn't know my dad's gambling at the time. I didn't mm-hmm. realize it till I was, uh, you know, a few years later. So what I remember from that Methodist church is, as was typical in the 60s, um, well, sorry, back up a bit. So, mm-hmm. you know, mid-20th century, German liberalism is becoming popular and sort of higher yeah. criticism and all that. And so, of course, it starts coming into the American seminary. So in the 60s, in mainline churches, there were a lot of sort of classical liberals. Mm-hmm. But the pews were still like just think of an orthodox, you know, almost pietistic Methodist church. Yeah. So yeah. when I think about my upbringing, I, re- I literally think of really pious really lovingly beautiful old ladies that were <laughs> that were my mom's friends who helped yeah, care for yeah. her. <laughs> so in the middle of that, now fast forward, and I'm a teenager. I'm in high school in Santa Ana, California. The Jesus movement is breaking out literally down the street, like two miles or something from my high school in Costa Mesa, California at Calvary Chapel. The Jesus movement is breaking out. So I'm not kidding, Ben. Every Monday when we went back to school, we'd find fallen friends who had given up sex, drugs, and rock and roll and gotten wow. saved the weekend before at some Jesus you know, uh, concert wow. or something. Yeah. And I really didn't get it. I mean, I, I was mm. not a good person. I was not a good kid. Um, mm. I just couldn't realize why anybody would give up sort of the culture of the late 60s and early 70s to go be a Christian. Yeah. Um, but lo and behold, now fast forward a little bit, I'm in college, I'm playing baseball, and one of the kids on the baseball team, just he, he was a part of one of the Jesus Movement churches, uh, Greg Laurie's church in Riverside, California, for those of you who know Greg. Hmm. Um, and he just kept bugging me to go to church, and finally I just said to Debbie, who, you know, he, her and I were living together, which shows you at least some point of the state of my, my heart and mind. Yeah. I just said to her at one point, God, let's just go to church. I mean, like, what could happen? Let's get this guy off my back. He's just bugging me every day. 
So we went to church, and it was just what you would think of as the Jesus movement, you know, long-haired surfer types, you know, leading Mm -hmm. the service and some, you know, for the early 70s or mid-70s, cool Christian band Mm -hmm. and a cool, you know, presentation of the gospel. And lo and behold, Debbie and I got, like, radically saved that night, the first night we went to church. Wow. we practiced what's now called secondary celibacy, you know, until we got married. Yeah. And just, yeah. just, I mean, that's just kind of a funny example. I remember having bumper stickers that said, God said it, I believe it, that settles it. Or right, right. <laughs> um, I think I had a Jesus Lives pin on the back of my ball, ball cap or something. Mm. You know, we just were sort of head over heels, um, wow. you know, convinced about, uh, about Jesus. Yeah. Did that, um, I, I'm curious about... I mean, it's it's a story that gets told a lot. You know, I heard the gospel and I just, you know, I just believed it. Yeah. Um, I don't know if there's something about uh, what you saw there or something about the way it was presented, or do you just attribute that to, man, the Holy Spirit must have been at work in my life because I had a complete, I'm, I'm here like yeah. a complete change of heart. Yeah, I guess I have sort of an existential experiential reaction to that, and now as kind of an amateur missiologist, I have another reaction. So the first reaction was, I think I was just hearing the gospel for the first time hmm. in a way that I could understand it. it like understood. it was coming oh, to me from my peers, okay. it was coming yeah. in idioms and language and dress okay. codes and the music, the social codes were I all see. building bridges. Um, and I think that that, 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 um, that kind of sociological thing gave it a plausibility structure. Do you know what I mean? Like I wasn't yeah. hearing apologetics. Like, um, oh shoot, it just went out of my mind. Uh, Josh McDowell was totally <laughs> famous when I was a kid. Yeah, yeah. But I wasn't hearing, it wasn't so much that I was hearing apologetics and Josh sort of style. I'm sure mm-hmm. there was some apologetics in the sermon, but I think it was more like, wow, these are my people. These are normal people. These aren't the freaks I thought yeah. they were going to be. yeah. And they apparently really love Jesus and are trying to follow him. So that's, I think, what explains it on more of an experiential level. When I look back now, though, as I said, as sort of an amateur sociologist of religion, amateur missiologist, is I think that my Methodist upbringing did create a plausibility structure in me that allowed me to hear the gospel in Hmm. my own terms. See what I mean? Hmm. Like, I wasn't radically unaware of church. I wasn't radically unaware of the concept of God or morals or ethics. I just had set it aside because I wanted to be a kid of the 60s and 70s. You didn't didn't see how these two things lined up or matched. Yeah. But, you know, maybe at that event, it was more like, oh, maybe these things can coexist um, in in a sense. And it just sort of gave you... That's fascinating that the, the kind of the culturally Christian home maybe provided the backdrop that made it possible yeah. for you to hear the gospel. <clears throat> and I, as I said, Ben, I've often thought of those old ladies. Now, they probably mm-hmm. were about my age now. <laughs> but as a little kid, they were almost like grandmother type. So like, I yeah. mean that with a lot of love and affection. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. And I feel like they probably have no idea, but they created a plausibility structure in me of the goodness and yeah. love and generosity that there is in the kingdom. Mm-hmm. And it was only seven or eight years later that those inadvertent seeds were you know, watered and then, you know, yeah. bore fruit. Yeah. Yeah. Beautiful explanation of that. So where did you go from there? So I, so I was 19 when I got converted. Um, so that I would have been about a sophomore in college. I was pursuing being a professional baseball player, 
right around the same time I got converted, I realized that I was not going to make it. The scouts told the coach that, frankly, I was just too slow. That was my thing. Mm. I just didn't have good enough speed mm. for, at the time, you know, contemporary um, professional baseball. Now, yeah. now the primacy on speed is even way off the chart in every sport. Yeah. Um, so I had other things going for me, but I was, I was not going to make it. And so then I began to wonder, well, what am I going to do with my life? Mm-hmm. I was studying business, so I thought, well, maybe I'll just work in the business side of baseball. I'll try to work in the front office. And I had um, a, a relationship, um, at least with Anaheim Stadium, and so slash the California Angels, because uh, I worked there for several years. Uh, our team had a relationship with the Angels, and so I thought, well, you know, I'll just see if I can work the angles and you know mm-hmm. try to work for my local team. Um, but then somewhere along the line, I started feeling these first little inklings towards quote ministry. Okay. And what happened was within the first, again, so many years ago now, I don't remember for sure, but it feels like within the first weeks of being a Christian, um, some Christian friends said to Debbie, some new Christian friends, Hey, why don't we start a midweek Bible study? We thought, okay, great. You know, again, all these sort of cool young kids, you know, we'll start a Bible study together. And we wondered, well, who's going to teach? And they said, well, we'll just sort of share it. And But, but Todd, why don't you go first? <laughs> so, again, I'm 19 years old. I, yeah. I have no idea. I think I might have owned Matthew. I think I might have went and bought Matthew Henry's one-volume commentary on the Bible. Mm-hmm. And I think I bought Haley's Bible Handbook because okay. Chuck Smith used to recommend that as like the gold standard for okay. you know Bible background stuff. Yeah, I, yeah. I mean, I don't know what other books I could have owned but those two. Mm-hmm. And you know, prepared this little Bible study, and when when it was over, everybody said, "Oh gosh, Todd, that was so great! Why don't you just keep doing it?" Okay. Now I, I have, you know, I had no idea. Honestly, Ben, I didn't even think of myself as smart. Mm-hmm. I, honestly, I barely graduated from high school. The only reason I got to go to college was because of baseball. Mm. And academics did not come easy to me. I never would have thought of myself as an intelligent or smart person meaning I would have never thought of myself as, a, quote, a teacher. Yeah. And now for 46 years, um, yeah. everywhere I go, you know, people have said to me, well, Todd, you're just, you know, you're such a good teacher, you know, or such a good communicator. Mm-hmm. Well, I now realize it was just an absolute flat gift of the Spirit that hmm. I had no idea would ever come to me. So that was a real turning point for me, and I think started leading me towards maybe doing ministry. So I graduated from college. I went to Calvary Chapel's um, sort of preparatory school for ministers called uh, Calvary Chapel Bible School. Uh, There I became aware of John Wimber, who was the founder of Vineyard Churches. Mm -hmm. And somebody suggested to me, you know, you ought to go talk to him. He's a real expert in church planning, and if you're going to go plan a church, you should go talk to him. So I went, and I, I met him, and... I remember being in his living room that afternoon and he was just, you know, he'd grown up Quaker and so was a dispensationalist, but was beginning to experience the things of the spirit. And I remember after a couple hour conversation in his living room, he looked across at me and said, you know, I don't know if I'm right about this, but I feel like the Holy Spirit's telling me to ask you to come, like come do a church planning internship with me and I'll send you out. And I was such a little Jesus freak. I remember driving from his house back up to the mountains in California where the Bible school was thinking, heck no, I'm not going to go do a six-month internship. People are dying and going to hell. I want to go start my church. Like, are you kidding? I don't have six months to waste. Jesus could come back in those six months, right? That's what drove yeah. us back then, yeah, yeah. is that Jesus could come back in those yeah. six months. Like, a heck yeah. no. Yeah. And I remember I got back up to the San Bernardino Mountains uh, to our um, place where we were living 
And I, for the first time, heard the Holy Spirit speak to me and say, Mm. no, you are going to go do that. Mm. So I went and I uh, did my uh, church planning internship with Wimber, uh, late 78, early 79. By later 79, we moved across the country to a city we'd never been to in our life, did not know one person, Mm. drove across country in our little Honda Civic uh, to a little town uh, called Wheeling, West Virginia. Oh, yeah. And started a, it was at the time of Calvary Chapel. Okay. It was either the second or third Calvary Chapel east of the Mississippi, so it was really okay. early on. Yeah. Um, and it's a still a lovely church. It's now 40, whatever, 41 years old or something, mm-hmm. and still a church, I think, of about a 1,000 people. And I, I often marvel, Ben, because you know people listening to this will know that C4SO has an emphasis on church planning. Yeah. And I often marvel that, that church, which was just like boyish fun, girlish fun. We were kids. I was 23 years old. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And we were just having fun. Mm. And now I think back over 40 years and just think, man, we could never count the acts of kingdom goodness that have been done in that congregation through 40 years. Mm. And it's part of what just keeps me committed to church planning is that yeah. they are amazing things. Like, especially yeah. if we conceive of them as planting outposts of the kingdom. Yeah. And trying to create ambassadors of the kingdom within that outpost. It's just yeah. stunning the, uh, the amount of goodness that comes through God's people. Not through me. I've been gone for 20-some years, yeah. more than that, 30 years. But that church but, carries on, and it's yeah. amazing. A seed was planted, not just, not just starting institutions that can persist, yeah. but a, a kingdom seed was planted that yeah. continues to bear fruit uh, long yeah. after you have uh, been investing in it you know, specifically with your time. Yeah. yeah, it is. It's a beautiful picture. So planted that church, and that's part of. It's part of the the question I want to end with. So, but I'll give you a preview of it <laughs> now. But the question I want to end with is what you know. Um, it relates to this of just what are the things that God has done in you, in your story, that you most want to pass on mm. to the people and the clergy and the, the leaders of C four S O and the and just you know the. Yeah. The, this diocese that you lead now. Right. Um, and so I, I'm hearing one of them, like our emphasis on church planting that I'm hearing one of those, one of those things is um, just kind of the, the, the wonder of what a church plant can do, just planting yeah. these kingdom outposts and seeing the fruit that they can bear over generations. Yeah. Yeah. Well, if you, if you think of um, my later influences uh, I came to a turning point in my life in 1991. So I, okay. I started that church in 79. So um, what would that be, 12 years later in 91? Mm-hmm. I came to a crisis, not of faith, like do I believe in God? But I came to a crisis of almost like church. Okay. Like what a lot of people went through in the late 90s, of sort of like you know the oh, emerging yeah. church movement, and deconstructing oh, yeah. church and all oh, yeah. that. Yeah, yeah. It happened to me about eight or so years earlier for some reasons that were internal to the vineyard, which, by the way, I love the vineyard. I have no issue with the vineyard. But I'm, I'm just telling my story. Mm-hmm. And I was just getting increasingly confused and perplexed and was kind of losing my way a little bit in terms of um, actually, now that I think about it, Ben, these might have been my earliest thoughts or some of my earliest thoughts or curiosities about the intersection of gospel and church and culture. Okay. I think that's what I was losing my sense of. Hmm. So I, I was at that time the senior pastor of the big megachurch in Anaheim or the senior, I don't remember my exact title, 
But I was running the church while John was running around, um, you know, being his famous self. And I mean that with tons of affection. Somebody needed to run the church in Anaheim. Yeah, so yeah. I was running the church okay. in Anaheim on John's behalf. And um, so I left, went back east again to uh, Virginia Beach, Virginia, and just made a couple of vows that I knew I needed to get educated, so I enrolled in seminary. Hmm. I knew I had to work on my own, for lack of a better word, brokenness. I, I just remember the Holy Spirit saying to me one day, look, Todd, you can't blame these people or what's happening in the vineyard. You have to own your response to it. Hmm. And that was the first trigger for what I now know as spiritual formation or spiritual transformation was, how do I own my mental, emotional, social reactions to something I'm troubled about. Hmm. So I did a little bit of therapy, not much. But in the midst of that, I discovered uh, Richard Foster, hmm. who I knew because Wimber had been a Quaker and Richard's a Quaker. And I'd had Richard come speak to one of our big vineyard conferences. And so I just knew his name and I happened to have on my bookshelf his book, Celebration of Discipline. I didn't know where else to start, so I picked it up. I think by the early 90s, some of Richard's other books, like Streams of Living Water or something else was out. Was out. Mm-hmm. So I discovered one of those books, and from there then I, quote, discovered Eugene Peterson and Dallas Willard and Henry Nowen and, you know, all the other sort of, um, you know, thought leaders of, the, of what's now called the Formation Movement. And so since 1991, Ben, I've just had this deep conviction that there's a, an essential organic connection between the private and public life of a leader mm-hmm. and that the forming of our own souls is not like, a, well, if I can get around to it, but it's actually primary. Yeah. Like we all say we like Jesus. Well, <laughs> then I suppose we should listen to him when he says it's out of the abundance of the heart, the mouth does speak. Yeah. or actions yeah. flow, or attitudes flow. Yeah. And so that first notion of like ministering from the inside out came to me uh, in the early 90s and has really, mm. uh, really very much uh, shaped who I am. Although I sometimes feel like a person without a country, and I don't mean that critically. I mean, I served on Richard Foster's board at Renovare for a mm. number of years. Dallas and I were very close. Eugene and I had a relationship. Of course, I never knew Henry now. And so it's not like I didn't feel accepted by those guys. Mm-hmm. But I think I've always been just a little bit of an odd, du- and therefore the movement, or James Bryan Smith or John Orberg. You know, I know all those guys. Mm. So it's not like I ever felt not accepted by them. It was that I also had this missional bent. And so yeah. I was always just sort of a little bit you know, occupying this slightly different space where I've always Mm -hmm. loved notions of evangelism and church planning and mission and justice. And, and again, that intersection of the gospel and culture and church has fascinated me forever. So Hmm. I just say succinctly, I guess from Cal, I would say from Calvary Chapel and the Jesus movement, I got a sincere love for, and like an intuitive, uh, high view of scripture. And I got a, a genuine sense for um, lost or de-churched or pre-churched people. Yeah. From the vineyard and John Wimber, I got a really high view of the kingdom mm. and a high view of pneumatology, of the practical relevance of having a, a, a relationship with God, the Holy Spirit. And then I think what people know of me, because it's the latter part of my career, is all the formation stuff. But mm. when I think of myself, I'm all those things. 
I'm yeah. Bible and evangelism and kingdom and spirit and formation. Yeah. And I've spent my whole life trying to work those things out, as I always say, for the good of others. So that hmm. as I work it out in my own life, others experiencing others experience me as working that out as for their good. Yeah. Yeah. So I hear you saying that the, your journey is less less of a leaving of something and finding a, a shiny new toy. Right. Yeah. It's not like, oh, forget the Calvary Chapel stuff. Forget right. the high view of scripture. Like we got the kingdom. We got the spirit here. Yeah. And then it's not that, wow, never mind about the kingdom. We've got formation. You yeah. know, we don't need the Holy Spirit anymore. But it's more of this, in, this journey of integrating right. uh, these, these things that are really part of your DNA, part of your spiritual DNA. But you don't have to reject the thing you're leaving right. you know, in order to embrace kind of what's next yeah. and, and be able to kind of integrate it into um, the totality of your story. Yeah, I forget which book I wrote this in. It's either in the Accidental Anglican or it's in Giving Church Another Chance, which is my sort of public disclosure of what you're saying, Ben, of how mm. I was trying to mm. integrate Anglicanism with everything else I was. Yeah. And you're exactly right. I I don't have, I have nothing but gratitude for mm. the influences in my life. But when I came into Anglicanism, you're and because at that time, well, I was just coming off of being president of Alpha USA, so I was still really mm. thinking about evangelism, but also in my heart of hearts, just always thinking about formation. Okay. And so when I was um, invited to consider becoming a, an Anglican and helping the Anglican Church and the Anglican Mission in, in the Americas at the time mm -hmm. to help plant, what they asked me was, do you think you could help us plant vineyard-like Anglican churches? Mm. Well, I knew what they meant. They meant something like what you're saying. Like, is there a way for us to plant churches that are kingdom, spirit, yeah. mission, but uh, are, uh, I don't know the right language here, are wrapped up in or involve this new sacramental liturgical world? Yeah. And so you're absolutely right. I haven't rejected anything. But when I came into Anglicanism, as I said in one of my books, I discovered this treasure chest. Hmm. Like, I could mm. just immediately see that a lot of what we now call Anglican spirituality would be little gold mines for formation. Yeah. Um, and I discovered in Cramner an incredible missional heart. I mean, yeah. why yeah. bet on early English when he could have played it safe and just bet on Latin? Well, mm -hmm. he did it for the sake of the people. He did it for mm -hmm. the sake of others. He was mm -hmm. trying to help people hear the the gospel in their heart language. Mm -hmm. And having heard my earlier story, Ben, this will help, I think, people understand me who sometimes misunderstand me, that I'm, I'm never being critical of, of Anglicanism per se or prayer book or anything like that. Um, but as I told you, I, I came to faith when I could hear the gospel in my heart language, mm -hmm. not the language of mid-20th century liberalism. Yeah. Uh, I had to hear it in my own language, and that's what Cramner was trying to do. Yeah, he was trying. He's trying to make sure that people were hearing the gospel in their heart language, and that the heart language was growing English. It wasn't. Mm -hmm. It wasn't Latin anymore. Mm -hmm. And so when I say, I always say these things tongue in cheek, but like I would prefer not to use the word oblation in public. <laughs> well, why? Not because I have a problem with the word oblation or the concept inherent in the word oblation. It's just that there are perfectly good synonyms that everybody would understand. Yeah. So why die yeah. on the hill yeah. of oblation if their heart language is closer to sacrifice yeah. or offering? Yeah. So I just, you know, again, I don't 
thank God I don't have enemies that I know of. But I just know sometimes uh, I can be misunderstood that all I'm really trying to do is help people see, hear, and perceive Jesus on their terms, meaning like if I can start mm. where they are. Mm-hmm. And again, my model for this is Jesus. Like everybody he talked to in the New Testament, he talked to differently. And if you ask yourself why, it's because he was starting where people are. Like, oh, yeah. Nicodemus, okay, you're a teacher of the law and you don't get this. All right, let's talk about it. Mm-hmm. Matthew, Levi, mm-hmm. you know, you don't get this. Okay, let's yeah. talk about it from your point of view. Zacchaeus, yeah. woman yeah. at the well, woman caught in adultery, the rich yes. young ruler, you can go on and on. Jesus always began with where people were, not where he wished they were. So he never compromised. He just like shaped his conversation towards them based on who they are. And that's my missional instinct. It's never to um, criticize any, you know, like church movement, whether it's Lutheran or Presbyterian or Methodist or Anglican. I'm never criticizing things like that. Hmm. I'm just always wondering how can I build bridges from this amazing thing we called Anglican, we call Anglican yeah. spirituality. How do I yeah. build a bridge to it and make sure I'm not inadvertently erecting barriers? Yes. Yeah, I think the, one of the ways I've heard you talk about this is that we have to live as ministers of the gospel in any tradition. We have to live in this tension between context, our actual context around us, right? The where are people at? What do they believe? What do they think? That's that and the continuity that we live in, that we, we come from a gospel tradition. Yeah. So the, the this that we're, that we're talking about, well, that, you know, that we can't just make up a new this. Right. Like there has to be yeah. some continuity with this tradition. Yes. Um, and the gospel comes to us as a tradition. And so there's this, you know, this, this tension you know, that we have to live in. And so I think you're, you're describing, I think, helpfully, the ditches that are easy to fall into, the context without continuity ditch yeah. is one where we'll just, you know, do whatever dog and pony show it takes to get right. people in here and hear the good news about Jesus, you know? And, right. Yeah. Uh, but then, you know, the continuity ditch without context is just, we're going to say oblation because that's what Cramner said, you yeah. know, and, and that's, you know, and that, that's, you know, Cramner said it, I believe it, and that settled it, you know? <laughs> yeah. or whatever, you know, yeah. um, no, nothing against, you know, those prayers, but yeah, they were written in the, 1500s, 1600s, you know, and so anyway. So um, that's helpful, uh, Bishop Todd. I think um, uh, some of the things I'm taking away here um, are the the value that you have from your story, the value you have on integrating um, all the parts of of your spiritual history that that have been gifts to you, that God has given you, that God has done something valuable in your life that you want to maintain a connection with, and then pass that on for the sake of others. Um, and so, I, you know, uh, all throughout from the, you know, scripture and evangelism yeah. stuff in the early days, the kingdom and the spirit stuff in the vineyard days, the, um, the formation stuff uh, with Willard, all of that kind of thing. Um, and now integrating that into, again, the sacramental tradition, this liturgical, yeah. you know, these liturgical practices. Right. Um, I think that's a really valuable thing. Maybe just to end, um, what, what would you say to that question I teased earlier? What are, for you, the ways that you've seen God at work in your story that you most want to pass on to the people and the, the leaders of C4SO? The words that come instinctually to mind are um, living presence. Hmm. That it's not just doctrine 
that Jesus rose from the dead or Jesus is alive, mm. but that he is a living presence to me. Mm. One of my favorite prayers is, okay, Jesus, you and me, come on, let's go do our work together. Um, I was doing a podcast for somebody else recently. Maybe it was for Telos. It was uh, me and uh, Mark, the president of Fuller. And somebody asked me a question about maybe how I knit my day together or something. And I said, and this is my way of living out that sort of living presence, is that in the morning, I practice uh, commitment or dedication uh, yeah. in morning prayer. Throughout the day, I try to foment presence. I try to foment the conscious presence, constant, conscious manifold, manifest presence of God in my life. Let me say that again. <laughs> I, I, try to, I try to be aware of the manifest presence of God in the people and events of my life. Mm. And then in the evening, I practice Ignatian Examine, mm. where I go through the day, and I examine where I felt God and consolation and or felt right. the absence of God and desolation. Mm. And I practice that, Ben, because I just think, you know, theology's great. I love theology. I've got an I've given away thousands and thousands of books over my, you know, <laughs> it, towards the end of my life here because I just don't have any place to put them. <laughs> but I just say that to say I've been a constant reader my whole life. I love actually love theology. I'm not a brilliant theologian like a Tom Wright or a you know, somebody like that. But I love theology. I love Bible. I love church history. I love the biblical languages. I love all that stuff. Mm. But if it remains just doctrine or just church history or just a good explanatory scheme of liturgy or just a, a good explanatory scheme yeah. of sacrament and is not to us a living presence, then I think we're not living what Jesus imagined when he said, it's better that I go away because if I go away, the spirit yes. will come. And if the Spirit comes, He'll teach you and lead you and guide you. And if you just think about that whole upper room discourse, those are very relational terms. Yeah. He will yeah. lead you. He, yes. Even just leading is relational. Guiding is relational. Mm. Teaching is relational. Recalling everything I said to you. Those are all relational sorts of terms. Mm. And I think that's the number one thing that animates me these days is um, mm. how do I, as a living person, cultivate a relationship with the living God Again, such that the overflow of it is for the good of others. Mm. Well, amen. Um, here's to more awareness of the living presence that we're called uh, to live in, the living presence yeah. of God. Uh, oh, man. Thanks for sharing that with us today, Bishop Todd. That's probably good hey, enough for today. Hey, uh, thanks for pulling this together, and thanks for hosting. Oh, yeah. This, this well, is going to be fun. I look forward I to the weeks really and months to come. I am looking forward to it as well. Yes. Uh, we're going to get, in the next few episodes, uh, get into a little bit of uh, C4SO itself. Um, okay. Again, from, from you, kind of what's the vision here? How does this connect with your story? Uh, all of that kind of thing. Um, real quick, though, before we go, for those interested in what missional leadership looks like at the intersection of gospel and church and culture, as Bishop Todd said earlier... Uh, I did want to invite you to the Telos Collective Intersection virtual conference that's happening this week in just a couple days, September 16th and 17th. Bishop Todd's going to be speaking, as well as C4SO's very own canon theologian, Esau McCulley, uh, one of uh, uh, our pastors, Ashley Matthews, um, who is at Trinity Westside in Atlanta, and honorary Anglican as I like to call him, David Fish. Yes, yeah. our, our <laughs> sacramental Anabaptist or whatever he Anabaptist, is. yeah, whatever he wants. Yeah, I don't think, he, he, he bucks against the honorary Anglican 
uh, language. Yeah. <laughs> but anyway, you can still register for that. Uh, it's just $39 at telloscollective.com. Um, anything you want to add to that, Bishop Todd? Other than I, I, I love the Telos Collective, and that might sound weird to say because I invented it, but right. that's not what I mean. <laughs> I love listening to the speakers. I really do. Yeah. Every year yeah. I grow yeah. from it. We've had amazing speakers over yeah, the last really four have. years. Yeah. But I also love the collegial conversations that are spawned by it, both yeah. the formal ones and the informal hallway, yeah. uh, later on ones. Actually, I just am an enthusiast. I'm like, you know, somebody who loves golf or something. Right. I just, I love these ideas. I love these topics. I love this community yes. we've developed. So I always have a great time there and hope yep. people will come. Yep. Very good. We'll be back next week. Uh, Bishop Todd will have you share a little bit of how your story links up with the story and vision of C4SO as it exists today. Uh, folks, if you are listening, I would encourage you to subscribe in your favorite podcast player. Give us a rating, all that stuff they say to do. Um, but I think the best way to share it is just to share it with somebody. Tell somebody about it. Say, hey, did you know my diocese has a, has a, uh, a podcast? So anybody that you think might benefit from it, we'd appreciate you sharing it. And we'll see you next time. Thank you, Ben. See you next time, everybody. Bye-bye. Thanks again for listening to this episode of the C4SO Podcast. We hope you enjoyed our conversation. Email us your thoughts and suggestions at connect at c4so.org.